You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Legal podcasts always have caveats, so here is ours. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette. We're here to discuss national security issues in the news and give you critical baseline information. Whether you've been practicing national security law for years, you're a journalist trying to understand the law, or you're a non-lawyer eager to improve your understanding of national security issues. And I'm Elisa. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual review of the field of national security law on November 1st and 2nd. To hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these important issues. We deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. We're proud to be unbiased. So let's get started. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topics on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. All right, today we continue our exploration of private national security law with two amazing women, Elizabeth Rinskoff Parker and Suzanne Spaulding. What an honor it is to have both of you here, especially because you have both served as chair of our very own ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thank you, Lisa and Yvette and Nicole. It's really an honor to be here. It's really great to join you. You've done such a terrific job with this podcast, and you've had some really wonderful folks on prior to uh, having us today. And so it's a real honor to be here. And it's a particular honor to be here with my longtime friend and mentor, Elizabeth Rinskoff Parker. Well, that's right. Too bad we didn't have this idea. It's a great one. (laughs) But really, Suzanne has uh, exceeded anything I ever could have hoped to do. So it's my pleasure to be with her and with you. Now you're seeing why everybody likes these two women. Hugs all around. Seriously. (laughs) All right, Dean Parker, let me start with you. And I want to ask your permission to call you Elizabeth during this podcast. Is that okay? You've headed numerous organizations. You're just a force of nature. I don't even know what to say here. Um, You've served as dean um, at the University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law. You've also been, among other things the executive director of the California State Bar, which I think is one of the largest bar associations in the entire country. You've been a senior career lawyer at the State Department, but I want our listeners to know that you're the former general counsel of the National Security Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency. Wow. What a role model for women aspiring to work in national security law. What a role model for anybody aspiring to work in national security law. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And you were, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, not only the first um, woman dean of McGeorge, but the first woman to serve as chair of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security as well. 
Well, that's true, and I believe I was also the first woman to be the general counsel at NSA and also CIA, just to kind of put it in perspective, but you know what? It all goes to show that it's smarter to be lucky than lucky to be smart. (laughs) You know what? You're a generous woman. (laughs) So Suzanne Spaulding has also been a first. She was most recently the first woman undersecretary for National Protection and Programs Directorate at Department of Homeland Security, which is basically one of the most important roles in protection for our government networks from intrusion. She's also worked as Minority Staff Director for the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and she served as six years as an Assistant General Counsel at the CIA. And there, she was the first woman, and indeed the first lawyer, to advise the Center on Nonproliferation, right? Yes. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks to Elizabeth's visionary leadership. Wow. So, um, apparently, any glass ceiling blew off and ran away upon meeting the two of you, <laughs> and we're all better for it. Uh, but we ask you here today to talk about the security of one of our most important American institutions. And in this case, it's our judicial branch of government. And the work that you're doing to raise awareness about how vulnerable we are and how much more we must act to protect that which we hold dear as Americans So let me start with you, Elizabeth. First, set the stage for us. Why did you care so much about this topic, and how is this ultimately a matter of national security worth the attention of lawmakers and thought leaders? Well, you know, my answer would be probably longer than what your podcast can absorb. But let me say that when I became the dean of a law school, particularly in California, with its remarkable diversity, it suddenly came into focus. And I realized that We have a common shared culture. It is what keeps us together as a nation, and it's our legal system and our system of rules and laws, the Constitution. And unless that can be protected, we are vulnerable. And so it becomes a critically important thing to make sure that we understand and we support this common culture that we are so lucky to have. Suzanne, you've worked tirelessly to heighten awareness about this possible threat. In particular, you authored a very strong report on the subject for the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The report, Countering Adversary Threats to Democratic Institutions, will be hyperlinked for our listeners. Can you tell us what motivated you to write this report, and can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. So this uh, really grew out of the experience that I had as the Undersecretary at DHS, responsible for cybersecurity and critical infrastructure protection. And so we spent a great deal of time and effort, particularly in that last year, run up to the elections, worrying about and looking at and trying to strengthen the security of our election infrastructure. And when I came out in January of 2017, realizing that what we had been challenged with in in terms of the elections was really just part of a broader campaign and a long-term campaign by, uh, in this case, Russia, to undermine democracy and to weaken us. And really it it was first and foremost about undermining the appeal of democracy. I believe very strongly that Putin's primary audience is his own population, where for many years he has been trying to reduce the appeal of liberal, liberal democracy and uh, and that that was a big part of what we were seeing in 2016 around the elections, but that it was only a part of this broader campaign. So I started thinking we know enough now to begin to think about how do we counter this. The investigations on the Hill, uh, Mueller's investigation, research that's being done by many folks, 
will continue to illuminate this issue. But we know enough now to know that we are under attack and we need to be countering it. So I pulled together a group of bipartisan group of national security experts, Russia experts, media experts, to talk about this information operation, information warfare from nation-state adversaries and ways we should understand it and counter it. And it grew out of that discussion uh, and then a follow-on conversation with Dr. John Hamry about the role CSIS could play. And so I joined CSIS to lead this project, Defending Democratic Institutions. We held a second roundtable and produced the report in February. In the interim, we decided we really wanted to do a deep dive on how these kinds of active measures could uh, undermine public trust and confidence in one key pillar of democracy, and that is the judicial system. The report itself that came out in February touches on that aspect of it, but is also a broader conversation to help folks understand that this is an attack on our democracy, not just elections. It goes well beyond elections and requires a whole-of-nation response. That's really interesting that you took that perspective because most people are focused on the ballot box, what kind of advertisement people are seeing. And so this is really a different you know, angle on this than the same problem. It's also interesting that you're talking about Russia because they have such a long history of interfering with dem- democracies, you know, for since the Soviet era and trying to influence American elections before, long before this one. Absolutely. And, and as Elizabeth pointed out, it's very important that we not create and, and continue to perpetuate the kinds of weaknesses and vulnerabilities that Putin exploits. Mm-hmm. And that means renewing the sense of shared narrative and the shared commitment to and recognizing the importance of democracy. It is weaknesses of our own making uh, that they are exploiting, whether it's divisiveness around issues like immigration or racial justice in this country, where we have seen Russian information operations taking both sides of issues and fanning the flames of our own divisiveness to exacerbate that in ways that weaken us. And that's the context in which we see some of the information operations that impact the judicial system, where those issues bump up against uh, our, our justice system. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it's fair to say that our judicial system is really sort of the shining tower on the hill, because it is we, we should not take for granted the fact that many, maybe even most judicial systems outside of the United States are plagued by corruption. And we are, as a nation, virtually devoid of it. Our judicial system is a model for all. I think that's a a very good point. And I think um, to look at the way this evolved historically, when we became very active in promoting rule of law and many of the basic principles that we hold dear in our own judicial system working abroad, and inclu- including first then the Soviet Union, but later on, of course, Russia and the former Soviet Union states, I think that was initially seen as a threat by people like Putin. And initially, that was the reason for pushing against this. And so if you were to look to see the number of institutions that were funded by a variety of democratically inspired initiatives, they've been closed down in Russia. But now I think it's flipped around, so it's not just they see it as a threat, they see it as an opportunity to undermine what is for us, I think, really the one area of government that people still have high confidence in. 
So if you were putting yourself in Putin's shoes, you might say, if I wanted to undermine this system, where would I go? I'd go for something that looks like it's strong and try and erode the confidence in that particular component of our democracy. And that's, I believe, why Suzanne is so right to focus on what about our judicial system? Are we doing enough to make sure that it is supported against these kinds of threats, which we see coming? Yeah, and if you need evidence sort of verifying this, all you have to do is look at the opinions which may counter an administration in this country. You go to other countries, it may not necessarily be the case. Um, so, Suzanne, can you tell us a little bit about some of the threats you identified in your op-ed that we'll link to in your report? Absolutely. So, as we started looking at, okay, if, if I were Putin and I wanted to undermine the pillars of democracy, I might go after the judicial system. Do we see evidence of that? And certainly, we have seen in other contexts that what we see Russia doing overseas, we then soon after see them uh, doing in the United States. And sure enough, if you go back to January of 2016, there's a famous case called the Lisa case in which a young woman of Russian heritage in Germany claimed that she'd been abducted by refugees and raped. Uh, the authorities very quickly determined that she had spent the night with a friend, that she'd made the story up. But before they could get that out, social media had grabbed hold of this story and really exploded it. And there were protests in the streets, you know, big crowds with signs. Russian officials, including Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, accused the German authorities of covering up a crime because of its policies on acceptance of refugees. So there's an example where the courts are being painted as really just organs of the state and political. Fast forward six months, Twin Falls, Idaho, uh, exaggerated allegations that a young girl was raped by two Syrian refugees at knife point. There were, as, when the authorities started looking into it, there were no Syrian refugees, there was no knife. Uh, something happened with three young people in the basement of a building, but the allegations had been greatly exaggerated. But social media grabbed hold of this again, once again. And there were, was tremendous pressure on the prosecutor. Why aren't you prosecuting Syrian refugees uh, for this crime? And the judge ultimately had his picture posted online, corrupt judge, big red arrow, and his home address. And then this is where we saw the Internet Research Agency first try to do an in-person rally where they tried to actually bring wow. people out to the streets through a, a fiction, a group that they set up called Secure Borders with a sensationalized picture of a young girl wide-eyed with an adult hand over her face saying, are we going to protect refugees over the safety of our citizens? So these are examples of the kind of information operations that can undermine public confidence in the impartiality and the independence of the courts. We see a regular, there's a regular program on Russia Today, which is been clearly identified as a Russian propaganda outlet called America's Lawyer, the unrelenting narrative of which is the American justice system is corrupt and broken. Now, what we see is that they take leg some legitimate grievances, they take a system that is not perfect, that Americans need to continue to work to perfect, but they fan the flames. They present a horribly lopsided, one-sided image 
that is designed to undermine confidence and weaken our democracy. Well, it's really difficult, right? Because there are activists in the United States that are legitimate that are trying to make positive changes, right, and address some of these grievances. But exactly. it's muddied by this disinformation over here, and you know, it just confuses the whole the whole argument. Yeah. And in your article and report, you referenced the Kremlin playbook. Could you expand on that a little bit for us? So my colleague at CSIS, Heather Conley, and her team did this work uh, long before I arrived at CSIS, in which they sought to understand how Russia was corrupting uh, regimes all across Eastern and Central Europe and produced the Kremlin playbook, which is a, an excellent revelation of the techniques and procedures that Russia has used successfully uh, in other countries to undermine their democracies. And we continue to see this play out on a daily basis. And what we're seeing in Poland right now around their judiciary, for example, I mean, these this is an ongoing story. But it is, we'll but it is well. Uh, we'll hyperlink some of those articles so our readers have greater context. That's an excellent point. Great. But this, but the Kremlin playbook is a really excellent explanation of how they're doing that. That's just wonderful. Um, okay, Elizabeth, you know, some people are sitting around saying right now, this isn't my job. Why can't we just rely on the intelligence community agencies to address these threats? Why is more needed from our leaders in government and the private sector and probably from every citizen in the United States? I think the first answer is really that our intelligence community is not designed to do things internally, domestically, but rather to protect us from external threats. And I think, though, your question's a terribly important one. A democracy is only as strong as its citizens and the ability they have to understand their systems and then to work to protect them. And one concern that I've had, I suppose, particularly since becoming the dean of a law school, is to see how poorly understood our system of democracy is. Uh, I remember being asked to join a panel by the former Chief Justice of California who was concerned about threats to the judiciary at that time, and he learned from a Gallup poll, I think, that the word independent when attached to the judiciary was not understood by most people. They thought an independent judiciary was a runaway judiciary. They didn't understand that there are three branches of government. And independent then refers to the fact that each of the branches is independent of the other. So he chose then to rename his commission as an impartial judiciary. Well, that's a simple example of what I think we are confronting as a terribly important problem throughout our society, and that is that people really do not understand at a basic level our system of government. Now, we look to the lawyers and we say, well, you should understand, but that's not enough. Of course the lawyers need to understand, but we should begin, I think, to look seriously at teaching civics as once we did at a much younger age. Another little anecdote I'll give you, and, and that is back to my time as dean, when we were interested in creating a law-themed high school, and we went to one of the most highly regarded funding organizations in California, and memorably, a woman highly regarded for her work in education said, I don't think we have a teacher corps who could do what you're asking us to do, which is to teach civics. And when she said that, I was shocked. My mother was a civics 
teacher wow, of social I, studies. I, I, that takes my breath away. It did mine. <laughs> but then I paused and I thought about it and I thought, well, of course she's right because we've not really been seriously teaching civics at an undergraduate, I shouldn't say undergraduate, an eighth grade level in the way that many of us of my generation had for many years. So, of course, our teacher corps is not well prepared for this kind of change in an instructional focus. Now, in California, there's actually been a requirement that we do introduce civics, and there's been a great deal of effort put into trying to get students in the pre-college arena uh, to understand the system of government that we're working with. But unless we do that at a, a national level, I think we're going to find that we have many people who don't understand what an independent judiciary should be doing. I think we can expect, Suzanne, that there will be counter-messaging on this idea on social networks. We're going to end this episode here, but please join us again next week to hear more from Suzanne Spaulding and Elizabeth Rinskoff-Parker on how lawyers, policymakers, and everyday Americans can help protect our democratic institutions. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today and tune in again soon. Remember, listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences, the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security's Annual Review Conference is in Washington, D.C. on November 1st and 2nd this year, so mark your calendars. You can also check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or follow our Facebook page. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has a great book on their desks, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available on our website. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 